the Dementia Researcher podcast, talking careers, research, conference highlights, and so much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast. Today, our Food for Thought series returns, and we're going to be finding out if we can use diet and nutrition in the fight against motor neurone disease. Hello, I'm Sam Moxon. I'm a researcher at the University of Birmingham, and I spend a lot of time looking into ways we can improve our brain health with what we eat. We've already heard a lot about dietary approaches in preventing things like Alzheimer's disease, but what about motor neurone disease? Helping me get to grips with this is Amber Sewell Green, accredited, accredited dietitian and PhD candidate at the University of Queensland Faculty of Medicine. It's an honour to have you here, Amber. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this discussion, so let's get into it, shall we? Absolutely. Ready to go. So, Amber, I think a good place to start is with very simple questions. So the first question I like to ask people who come onto the show, because we talk so much about food, and it's the, it's the focus of our show. That's why it's called Food for Thought. And we're looking at ways to improve our health by taking small steps with the things we put on our plate. And they say the most important meal of the day is breakfast. So the first question I like to ask people is, what did you have for breakfast today? Ah, all right. Um, I'm a little bit of a creature of habit Monday to Friday. I definitely don't mind going out for a good breakfast, but I myself have been plant-based for going on eight years. So usually, and probably even if I wasn't plant-based, I'd do a similar thing. I'm a big fan of muesli, so different kind of grains in there. I always try to include seeds, um, whether it be pepita or pumpkin seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, uh, sometimes peanut butter if I feel like it, usually some oat milk and whatever fruit I have on hand. So at the moment, we're tropical. So we have some really good honeydew melon and really good mango. So that was my breakfast. That sounds great. Mango. Mango is my favorite fruit. I love having mango at breakfast. So in season at the moment and so juicy. (laughs) Definitely not in season in the UK, but I still enjoy it. <laughs> so the, the first question I want to ask you that's more sort of research focused, lightly research focused is, could you tell the, the listeners a bit more about yourself, you know, who you are, what, what your research involves and how you got there in the first place? What, what sort of inspired you to go down the route that you've gone down? I've been an accredited dietitian for around eight years now. Uh, work, I have had the fortune or good fortune to be able to work in the plant-based nutrition space. Didn't think that was going to be so much of a possibility, but it has been, and it's been an absolute delight. Uh, mainly worked in private practice as I'm more uh, involved in preventative and lifestyle changes. So always worked in that private practice space, but also taught uh, at community college kind of practical tips, a little bit about cooking and a little bit more interactive group classes, worked in medical centers. Um, and I've always had a passion to eventually end up looking at nutrition for brain and the mind because something that's become very clear to me is you can't really treat the body without the mind. And we have so many wonderful advances in you know, basically giving someone an entirely new heart virtually if we need to, but we really are behind in terms of we can't really do the same with the brain and the mind. So yeah. I really see that, especially with all the stresses that have occurred in the last few years particularly, uh, and when we combine that with things like social isolation, that tends to cause changes in the brain. And I think we're going to see a big rise in more of brain-related medical concerns 
milestones coming up, especially as we're, you know, living longer, our bodies can hold out, but our mind doesn't seem to be doing the same. So because I see, you know, changes in mood and mental health, increased rates of things like neurodivergence, and also increased rates of things like neurological diseases of aging or NDAs like dementia and motor neuron, I thought, okay, it's going to be really important to be at the forefront of this shift in medicine. So about two years ago, I re-enrolled to study neuroscience. I did an accelerated course over two years instead of three, which was probably silly, but taught me very quickly. Uh, And then I ended up enrolling in a PhD in motor neuron disease. So that's where I'm at. It's been about a year and that's where I was able to, um, to head over to Switzerland recently. So it's an exciting field, but it's definitely one... Uh, that is behind and that we're having to pave a lot of the research, which I think was surprising. So that's a bit about me. Well, you say like it's it's still a bit behind. The good thing is I think it's stopped, we're starting to catch up a little bit. So we, we saw headlines in the UK earlier this year that dementia rates are predicted to double and it was tied directly to obesity. So mm. we're sort of gaining more of an understanding that, that those yeah. environmental factors do have a big impact on our brain and a big one is diet but before we get into that (laughs) this podcast generally speaking is listened to by researchers but this particular food for thought series is starting to get public attention and so we have members of the general public listening who are interested in in finding out more they maybe maybe have family members who have dementia or they want to learn about strategies that they can do to to reduce the risk of dementia and we've mainly spoken about alzheimer's disease but today we're going to talk about motor neuron disease so for anybody who's listening who perhaps isn't aware, could you spend a short amount of time talking about what motor neuron disease actually is and how it may differ to something like Alzheimer's disease? Absolutely. So motor neuron disease, and it's also sometimes called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS, is that disease um, we're most familiar with people like Stephen Hawkins, who had the disease and did a lot of work in the field or things like the ice bucket challenge that kind of went viral globally. Yeah. So this disease um, is a disease where the types of cells in the brain um, called motor neurons, um, so the motor neuron, the motor part of the brain, um, and then the other types of motor neurons, the ones in our muscles, they basically degenerate. So you end up with problems with the brain, problems with the muscles, and essentially the brain can't speak to the muscles. So slowly the body's muscles will will die off. And it's quite a devastating disease. There's a very broad spectrum. So it is a spectrum of disorders. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS is the most common one that involves both the, um, the motor neurons in the brain and in the spinal cord of the muscles. But there's other forms that affect mainly the brain or other forms that affect mainly the muscles as well. And It's what we call a very heterogeneous disease in the sense that there's a lot of difference in this spectrum. Typically, because it's so devastating, people do die within three to five years of it, usually because the muscles for respiration or breathing are the last to go. But some people do live 10 to 12 years, and that's why we can't assume that everyone's the same. And I think there needs to be a really big push for not only looking at how to improve survival or prevent it, but also look at how we can improve the quality of those years lived as well, because it is different. It's a very physical disease, isn't it? Especially compared to something like Alzheimer's disease, which can manifest 
primarily in, in a more sort of cognitive way. Motor neuron disease is extremely yeah. physical, isn't it? The effect that it has on the patient. Absolutely. And, and mind you, there is that cognitive element. There is what's called yeah. an ALS FTD spectrum as well. So there seems to be some cognitive involvement, but you're right for the majority of people. It's that very, you know, your mind is totally sharp, but your body yeah. is kind of deteriorating. Yeah, almost failing you in, in the, the sort of the worst possible way. And it's sort of a tr tragic in the same way as Alzheimer's disease, although with Alzheimer's disease, we have seen a few recent uh, sort of breakthroughs come through regulation, mm. which are focused on acute treatment, which perhaps is not the best, still not the best source of treatment at the moment. We're looking at more prevention being powerful. And most neuron disease is the same, isn't it? We have no cure. And so yeah. to frame this discussion, where does diet sit in the framework of motor neuron disease? Is it similar to Alzheimer's disease where this is something we can use more as a preventative strategy? But can it also improve quality of life for someone who's diagnosed as well? I definitely want to be able to re-answer this question again in five years and give you more information on that. So please yeah. watch this space. But from what I've been researching and, and it both in my own studies and just throughout the literature, it does seem like there's a bit of both. You definitely have this prodromal phase 10 to 20 years before the disease actually hits where we definitely see lifestyle factors playing a difference. And that is seen throughout the literature, your classic kind of metabolic storm or higher levels of things like total cholesterol and LDL do seem to or that LDL, I call it lousy, but the type of cholesterol that we don't want to see rise in our blood tests, um, that does seem to be related to increased risk of actually developing um, ALS. So, and we've also got researchers out there that have now found it's, it's very much a gene environment interaction. Genetics only account for maybe 10% of this disease. 90% of cases are what we call sporadic or we don't really know why they're occurring. But even within that 10% of genetic or familial cases, there's huge amounts of difference. And even in genome-wide association studies, we see huge amounts of differences, which do suggest that it's a really complex interplay between the, our genes and the environment, kind of triggering very complicated cascades. And that definitely seems to have a metabolic involvement. There's also a researcher based in the UK, Amal Chalabi, who's done a lot of work finding kind of that there's six step processes. So six key things that need to be triggered in order to develop the disease. And if you have those four genes, you may have four of six, but that's not the total six. So there definitely seems to be that lifestyle element in the preventative stage. But once you have the disease, there also seems to be a lot of metabolic involvement. We know that you know, the, the body seems to need more energy and the, the mitochondria, the little energy units of the body seem to require a lot more energy. There's cases where people become hypermetabolic, up to 50% of people with ALS can develop an increased metabolic load or need of the motor neurons. And there's if people can eat enough food, there's a very different outcome compared to if people can't meet those higher energy demands. We see switches from glucose as our body's preferred fuel source, carbs. We see switches to fat being used as a, as a fuel source. And so there's clear changes there. But with that, um, that happening for a long time can induce inflammation in the body or increase in what we call reactive oxygen species. And we know that if someone is malnourished, which affects up to 50% of people, so we say about 15 to 50% of people with ALS can develop malnutrition, it's linked to 7.7-fold increased risk of earlier death. So clearly, once you have the disease, 
if you've got any amount of weight loss, even people in actually a healthy weight range, they kind of almost need to have a buffer of being a little bit overweight. If they're not in that slightly overweight category, they die a lot faster and they experience functional decline a lot more rapidly. So there seems to be a really clear role of nutrition both during the disease and in the preventative space, which is why I think there is a lot of promise for nutrition in this field. So it sounds almost like the, the nutrition is in constant sort of cycles, both before and after diagnosis, the nutrition is, is critical throughout the whole, the whole process. Um, I think that's, that's, that's quite fascinating to hear. And so the, the sort of what, what strikes me there is we hear this story so often with, with chronic disease and there's a physician you may know called Michael Clapper who uses the phrase that genes may load the gun, but the diet, the lifestyle, the environmental factors, they pull the trigger. And so is, is, are there any particular sort of bad, let's say bad nutritional elements that seem to put you at higher risk? The same way we, you know, we see with, with saturated fat being a risk factor for, for Alzheimer's disease. Are there certain foods that you should be avoiding if you are perhaps at higher risk or want to reduce your risk of developing something like, like motor neuron disease? Or is it more about a more widespread approach of just trying to be healthier in general? I would say it's it's a combination of both because at the end of the day, nutrition is a synergistic process. And if we start to cherry pick nutrients in isolation without looking at them at the whole picture, then we can start to skew the way that our body actually works. So in lifestyle factors, we've definitely found you know, things like smoking and things like when you're obese before getting ALS, that, that 10 to 20 year phase, then you're more likely to get the disease. That's when we see high levels of total cholesterol and triglycerides and LDL, those more saturated fats that you described, linking to increased risk of developing the disease. But once you've triggered it or switched it on, which seems to be maybe 10 years before the disease, then... The reason I'm hesitant to answer that is there seems to be a switch and everything that we know about health seems to flip. All of a sudden, what we'd consider to be helpful cholesterol, our HDL, the one that takes our cholesterol back to the liver to be processed, if you've got high levels of that, it suddenly seems to be a risk factor once you get the disease. Something's going on where our body suddenly needs to use fats and needs to use them quite heavily. And maybe it is because the brain and the muscles rely so heavily on fats. And if the body has got to a point where there's insulin resistance or it can't use carbohydrates effectively for energy, our body is gonna need something. It's gonna need something for energy and it might need both different types of fats, maybe more of the unsaturated ones, those ones that we'd get from, from different seeds, would get from things like seaweed or our omegas that we describe seem to be protective. But it might also be that a lot of nutrients, fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K, and another one called choline, rely on fats. So if we're going, okay, I'm going to completely strip the diet of fats to avoid motor neuron disease, we might actually be depriving ourselves of a lot of the nutrients that our brain and muscles really need to combat those metabolic changes going on. So in, in essence, I would say try to follow those healthy lifestyle principles at this stage, trying to keep cholesterol levels in norms, trying to increase the types of fats that we consider to be nutrient rich, our avocados, our nuts and seeds, our omegas, when whatever way you want to get that from, that's also possible from things like algae, and also trying to maintain a reasonably healthy weight and, and monitor what's in your environment at this stage seems to be that, that protective approach. 
And I'm happy to link an article talking a little bit about some of the preventative or some of the factors that they've found that are, that are uh, listed in increasing the risk of developing ALS as well from further reading. So it's interesting you talk about that, that switch, you know, post development of the, the good fats no longer necessarily having the benefit. And we had a, a guest on recently who uh, was talking about ketogenic diets and mm. almost being a, a strategy to bring in after Alzheimer's diagnosis because of the changes in metabolism. And it's got me wondering if there's a similar thing going on here where the, the body's need for different fats changes after a diagnosis like this. But I'll, I'll come back to that, to that later. So I, I want to go back to sort of, let's say we're in the preventative stage. So, you know, that 10-year 10, 10 window what, 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 you know, before mm-hmm. something is triggered. Is there a particular type of diet that can tick the boxes easily that, you know, people perhaps should think about moving more towards or adapting the principles of in their sort of daily eating habits to help protect against something like this? When it comes to dietary styles, I always say take care that nothing looks too extreme if you're really going extreme with your macros or trying to cut out food groups or trying to really hone in on one thing it's usually kind of like a disordered eating style packaged up and wrapped up in a present so i do say be very careful of anything that looks so extreme and really isolates or cuts things out but when we're looking at a balanced dietary perspective where you're getting in a full range of nutrients and the things that might protect the motor neurons, which are things like anti-inflammatory properties, then there's two kind of dietary styles that come into mind that have been linked to um, improved brain health. And that might be one side is the kind of Mediterranean style of eating and the other style is the mind style of eating. Now, both of those actually can be classed in terms of plant-based nutrition because the benefits of both of these styles is they move away from your kind of high consumption of, of animal products that might promote inflammation through various means and really focus on whole foods, whole grains, fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds, and including kind of plant-based proteins in the protein groups. So you'll see this dietary style is not particularly low fat either because it has those whole food fats coming from things like avocados, nuts and seeds, olives. But then you've also got that whole grain element, which is going to come with lots of B vitamins that support processes like methylation in a much more natural way rather than the kind of ground up flowers that might be fortified with nutrients in a way our body may not be able to break down so efficiently. You've got all of your antioxidants and all those anti-inflammatory components and vitamins and minerals in there. But coming back to it, I say do be careful that we're still including whole food versions of fats and particularly with a focus on omega-3s. The more I look into and treat people with things like multiple sclerosis or dementia or motor neuron disease, I do see that increased need for omega-3 fatty acids that sometimes can um, get ignored or overshined or be debated heavily in kind of the plant-based nutrition realm. And I do say whether it's coming from an algae-based supplement or whether you're really focused on seaweeds or what have you, really do emphasize maintaining that as an element in that kind of preventative and longevity space as well. Is that the same omega you can get from something like a flaxseed or is is it a different omega? Yeah, yeah. So omega-3 fatty acids can have a short chain version alpha-linolenic acid, which can come from things like flaxseeds and chia seeds. 
but they have to be ground up. Essentially, if you don't yeah. grind them, they'll kind of go out the same way that they go in. So, yeah. and they also oxidize quite quickly. So we're not looking at grinding up a whole bunch of them and then having them there for the week. We're kind of looking at throwing them into a smoothie and letting them be ground up instantaneously. Okay. There are cases where say through pregnancy and breastfeeding or after a certain age, they say roughly 60 to 65, um, you may find that conversion of alpha linolenic acid to direct long chain omegas like EPA and DHA and DPA a little bit more tricky. So if you know that you have genes associated with motor neuron disease or associated with those neurodegenerative diseases of aging, I usually say try to get your direct omega-3s or be a bit more focused on getting the direct ones, whether it be from foods or from supplements. And here, I'm personally a huge fan of seaweed or algae. Fish yeah. are rich in omega-3, and I will be completely objective with that. They are high in that, but I'm also not a huge fan of how we've treated our oceans. And yeah. the downside of that is fish are also a big sponge for what we put in our oceans, including things like mm. PCBs heavy metals, microplastics, yeah. as you mentioned, pharmaceuticals. So you may be getting your omega-3s, but it may be packaged with a whole bunch of other things, which could be that little switch that switches on that genetic factor as well. So yeah. algae being a plant has filtration aspects in there. You're getting all the wonderful omegas, which is where fish would get their omega-3, but you're not seeing it packaged with as many of those kind of yeah, extra nasties that might be in the ocean as okay. well. So before I move on to the next sort of, sort of wider question, just another quick one. Is, is saturated fat thought to be a problem for, for motor neuron disease risk or is, or is there not a study showing a connection between those at the moment? Leading up to the saturated fats would be what increases or drives that LDL cholesterol, the type of cholesterol that goes from the liver and gets deposited around the arteries and kind of slips in. But this is where I say everything doesn't really make sense and then we see a switch in that about 10 years. So that's all of a sudden, if you've got low total cholesterol or triglycerides or low LDL, it seems to f make the whole disease process faster. And that's where at the moment I would be hypothesizing or my thoughts are if the body can't use glucose as a fuel source and it suddenly needs that fat for extra energy, if you don't have any there, then the motor neurons are going to struggle and kind of die off faster or degenerate faster. And that's actually a lot of what my PhD is focusing on is actually looking at the different subtypes of fats in the blood and in the diet and see if we can find a prognostic panel. So we may find that once we have the disease, we actually, like you suggested, may need a higher fat diet. I'm definitely not an advocate for ketogenic diets, but in this case, I try to be objective as a researcher and say the brain and the muscles seem to need and and they actually the muscles preferred fuel source they do actually drive off fat so they may need these types of fats but even then when you're just giving those types of fats long term it creates reactive oxygen species which can actually damage the motor neurons and trigger apoptosis or cell death so it may be that we need those types of fats but we need them in a more mediterranean style or we need them more from say coconut combined with other fruits and vegetables and antioxidants so that we can actually spare that production of reactive oxygen species and actually promote so it's it's still a system it might be yes we need those saturated fats when someone gets the disease but we need them in a form that comes with lots of other vitamins and minerals and anti-inflammatory properties to actually help the cell itself and help the the neurons it's got me thinking as well as whether you know how much 
it sort of makes sense when you think about the fact that the cells we're talking about, you know, neuronal cells, muscular cells, their energy energy demand is huge, and that energy comes from the food that we consume. But then it, it's also, you know, I like the phrase, food is not just calories, it's it's information and it it sort of has this big impact on our body. And one of the big places that it, it impacts is in our gut and our gut microbiome. And, you know, we now know more, so much more about the fact that that sort of culture of trillions of microorganisms in our, in our digestive tract doesn't just affect the way we digest food, it affects everything. And we know there's links between the microbiome and Alzheimer's disease. Have there been any suggestions that the microbiome may be playing a role in motor neuron disease as well, or is that still a fairly new thing to be to be looked at? Our lab did try to actually investigate that, took so many stool samples that I'm sure they're slightly scarred by this stage, <laughs> and did try to look into it. But this everything, we're clearly missing some answers with motor neuron disease, because again, everything we go, oh, this is healthy, seems to be absolutely flipped in motor yeah. neuron disease. And then the studies they found is that the types of gut bacteria that normally associated with poor health seem to be protective. Something something is going on here and they couldn't find conclusive evidence. So I wouldn't say rule out the role of the microbiome. I definitely think it would have its place, but we haven't figured out the right way to analyze it or we haven't got conclusive results at this stage. So I'd say there's nothing I can specifically say at this point. I wouldn't be surprised if it does come out, but I think we've got to figure out more about what's going on underneath before we can tackle that question properly. And I suppose the added difficulty is if, you, if you're looking at patients and look at the microbiome and you see changes versus healthy patients, you don't know whether that's a result of malnutrition from the disease or you know changed in dietary habits or if they are causative and finding out you know the, the relationship there can be quite difficult because that was a big question about alzheimer's disease is this because it's, it's hard to get patients to eat or is this because those gut bacteria that have changed in there are driving the disease and that makes it quite quite difficult um yeah. if you don't mind then i'd like to move forward mm -hmm. to post-diagnosis yeah have you seen any sort of evidence of i know we can't cure this but any mm -hmm. improvements in quality of life when diet is included as part of a sort of i hesitate to say therapeutic because well i guess it is that yeah. you know we are talking therapeutic but it is that have we seen improvements by changing people's diets post-diagnosis yeah. you know longer life or something like that and I think we're definitely on this amazing precipice where five years ago people weren't interested in this topic and now it's really only in the last five-ish years or so that, that it started to gain momentum. So I'd say there's definitely going to be more and more coming out and this is a really exciting time as this literature starts to build. So I think if we come back in five years, I'm going to be able to tell you a lot more, but there's definitely some preliminary findings that are that are coming out regarding um, improving things like fatigue and mood, uh, slowing rates of decline, which in motor neuron disease is something called the ALS FRSR, a functional rating scale that looks at all the different symptoms and how quickly or rapidly someone is declining in the function of different parts of their body. So that's used as a functional marker. And we use something called Delta FRS, which is the overall rate of functional decline. And the other yeah. part that can be a marker for looking at how um, so how someone is declining is their respiratory function or their forced vital capacity. As I mentioned that ultimately death is because the lungs don't work anymore. So if we're seeing the lungs decline faster or slower, that can tell us how quickly the disease is progressing or how impaired someone might be feeling. So okay. there are a few 
a few interesting studies I actually want to highlight, which talk about the propensity of diet. We know okay. that we know before I go into them that um, that what what we call peg or a type of feeding which is done through a tube if someone can't eat properly because they've got involvement of their throat muscles or their vulva muscles if they yeah. are provided with peg nutrition they tend to do a lot better in terms of they live longer they they progress slower but we're we're slowly trying to build upon if it's not that kind of um i guess artificial nutrition what can we do in terms of the dietary element so okay. one of the studies I wanted to highlight is a study by Neves and colleagues. This was done in 2016. I really love this because it's something called a multi-center study. So they looked yeah. at 16 clinics in the US from 2008 to 2013, over 27,000 people. But in the end, there were around 200 people, sorry, 300 people with ALS. And they looked at nutrition factors. And they found that when someone has motor neuron disease, higher intakes of antioxidants. So these are the kind of anti-inflammatory nutrients and particularly yeah. a one called carotenes, which are your orange colored um, yeah. pigment found in fruits and vegetables and also in green fruits and vegetables. It's just that the carotene is often masked by the dark green chlorophyll that's over the top. So our green and our orange fruits and vegetables, this was associated with higher ALS FRSR scores and higher forced vital capacity. Now, with these scores, you actually want the scores to be as high as possible. And the okay. more disabled someone is, the lower their scores will become. And the same with forced vital capacity. You want as high a percentage as possible, meaning the greatest amount of lung function. And as someone gets more disabled or loses their lung function, their forced vital capacity will decrease. So fruits and vegetables and antioxidants and carotenes were associated with slower decline in in function in terms of the lungs and overall and this can okay. make a huge difference because when we're talking decline this is someone's ability to speak and communicate this is someone's yeah. ability to write or lift or move things so that to me is really important in terms of quality of life especially when we're looking at productivity and normality so that to me is one of the first instances that start to show okay diet can have an impact there's, this was kind of recapitulated in a more recent study in Korea by you and colleagues, and this was in 2020. And they did look a little bit at microbiota, but they were more looking at terms of diets and 24-hour and dietary recall. And okay. they looked at five... Uh, fiber from five different food groups, from vegetables, fruits, grains, legumes, and nuts and seeds. Yeah. Uh, this one, again, was, was a large study. So they had, you know, a few, few hundred people. So it was a, a decent, um, decent power in this study. So what they noted is that the delta FRS values, so with this one, you want the delta FRS to be small to, so, to show a smaller change over time. If your yeah. delta FRS is big, it means that that change is happening really, really quickly and someone's declining really fast. If it's okay. a small yeah. delta FRS, then they're declining slowly and living longer. So they found that people with the lowest delta FRS had the highest intake of vegetable fiber intake. And okay. that's something I found really interesting. So they also yeah. found, yeah. I'm just, I'm just this... thinking, just, just to um, just to quickly, because yeah. something's popped in my head there. You know, you say the vegetable fiber, we, it goes back to the gut microbiome. We know vegetable fiber yeah. produces bacteria that produce butyrate, and that's neuroprotective. Um, Absolutely. It's just got me wondering about that. 
So this is why I say we are not conclusive with the gut microbiome, but I, I predict that maybe we'll find better ways to study it. Maybe we'll find more about ALS and be able to target mm. the right question. So I wouldn't rule out the gut microbiota. I'd just say that we're still figuring out the best way in order to actually test this hypothesis. So yeah, yeah. I think there's definitely potential still there. Okay. And this study also found that higher vegetable fiber intake was negatively correlated or negatively associated with inflammatory markers. Yeah. So there's one called pro-inflammatory cytokine or interleukin. Um, there's interleukin-6 or IL-beta and another chemoattractive protein one. And this was in the cerebrospinal fluid. So the, the fluid that's kind of going around the spine and around the brain. So this shows that the vegetable intake was actually having an impact on inflammation. And we know that inflammation okay. is a big part involved in the death of these cells, these motor neurons as well. Yeah. So they also found correlations with grain, the, the kind of fibers from grains as well. So these two studies kind of show that plant foods have different elements in them, particularly from fruits, but we found, uh, sorry, particularly from vegetables, but we have found other studies showing fruits and grains as well have nutrients in them, anti-inflammatory effects, and are directly affecting the way that someone would be, um, I guess, declining in terms of their function yeah. and especially in their lung function. Okay. There's also, as you mentioned briefly, kind of a few vitamins and minerals that have been associated. So I'm happy to talk a little bit about these, but I'd say it's still a bit of a watch this space kind of okay. story. Okay, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, yeah. All right. So I guess one of the things I like to highlight with this is that people are looking for a way of including nutrition and lifestyle because right now this is a disease where once you're diagnosed, there's not much you can really do to help yourself. And if we find a way that we can say, hey, eating more of this would help or following these guidelines would help, it gives someone... I guess a sense of control over their health, but also means that they can actually participate in eating, which itself has so many psychological and sociological benefits of just sitting down and sharing a meal. So we know that there was um, a study of, of more than 600 types of, um, um, sorry, a study of over 6,000 people, and it had over 7,000 medical records, and they found that you know more than half of people were using vitamins, supplements, yeah. different dietary styles. But the problem is because these weren't evidence-based, they didn't really have positive benefits over the placebo. So finding okay. evidence-based nutrients is going to be really important. And what we have found so far in our literature is that there are certain vitamins and minerals. So particularly um, vitamin D um, and yeah. a little bit as well in vitamin A and E, our fat-soluble vitamins does seem to have positive benefits. But if we're finding a bit of um, difference in the literature, it can be that evidence is more found when it's food-based rather than supplement-based. Yeah. We also seem to find that vitamin C and a few of our B vitamins, like vitamin B12, is involved. And that might be because vitamin B6, B9, and B12 is involved in a process called methylation in the brain that helps our cells. Yeah. So that could be involved. But what we've really seemed to find is that polyunsaturated fatty acids are particularly helpful in terms of okay. once you've got the disease. And I'm starting to see that I'll, um, next year. I don't want to put say too much because it's to come out, but... Sometime, oh, it will be by next year, but sometime this year, I'm looking at bringing out a review on the evidence of different types of fats 
in motor neuron disease and we see the most uh, the strongest conclusive evidence is coming out around the polyunsaturated fatty acids it's interesting yeah. you talked about food versus vitamins because um our first guest on on this show was 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 neil barnard and, and he talked a bit about vitamins and, and and sort of alzheimer's progression and how with things like um, a and e and you know the kind of things you would get from things like nuts it's much more beneficial to get them from the food than from yeah. supplements and all those vitamins you talked about then, all the important nutrients, it's so easy to get on a plant-based diet, and including B12, which is you know the stick that's often used to uh, to, to sort of beat a plant-based diet. But you know it is possible to get B12 and that kind of thing. And so, mm-hmm. I think what I'd like to to ask next is if someone's listening to this and they may be wanting to make some of those, those dietary changes and move towards getting more plants on their plate and trying to, mm-hmm. to move towards a, a healthier lifestyle. What advice would you give them? You know, what's a good place to start to make a change like this and make it sort of a, a sustainable change that they can stick to? And that's a really great question. What I would say is firstly, as a tip in any kind of habit change, it's about consistency and not perfection. Try not yeah. to, if you're feeling overwhelmed by doing a total 360, look at small changes that you can make and build upon. Maybe it's a meal once a week. Maybe it's a day once a week. Maybe it's trying one new recipe a week. But the other part I say is focus on what you're including more of rather than what you're taking out. If you've decided you'd like to eat more legumes in place of meat, don't focus on, okay, I've got to take out the chicken. I've got to take out the fish. Focus on, all right. What's a new way that I can learn to use something like tofu? What's a new way yeah. that I could learn to use chickpeas? What's a new way I could learn to incorporate nuts? So look at what you're focusing on including more of, and that's going to be far more inspiring than what you're taking out. And yeah. also have a look at what nutrients. So say, for example, I see a lot of people, maybe they decide that they want to swap to dairy alternatives and they take out yogurt and put in a coconut yogurt. And that's all well and good that, Yogurt is going to have similar, you know, flavor profiles and kind of act in the same way a yogurt would in that dish, but you're not yeah. necessarily getting the calcium from that type of yogurt. So you might look at, okay, what are some different ways to get calcium? And that's where there's all these different ways we can get them from green leafy vegetables. We can get them from yeah. figs of all things. We can get them from certain nuts like almonds and sesame seeds. We can get them from soybeans. So it's just yeah. about knowing, okay, if I'm going to take something out, I may put something back in that's kind of texturally and food-based very similar, but am I getting the nutrients? And if not, what's another way that I can incorporate that into my day? Yeah, and I think... The, the message that you see a lot now as well from from people who, who are trying to, to sort of promote this, this this type of living is to try and get 30 different plants a week and that can include yeah. things like herbs and that sounds like a lot but if you make sort of curry or chili or something like that if yeah. you include the herbs you can get 10 or 15 yeah. in that in that it's, dish it's actually surprisingly easy there's a wonderful i think it's an app called eat the rainbow that sometimes i use with my patients just to to start yeah. to promote that and that is because of the diversity of microbiome and that's a lot more linked to we know a lot more research with mental health that the greater amount of plant foods the more diverse our microbiome is and then there's a lot more evidence around benefits for mental health in terms of that but you would be surprised by the time you include say you decide to chuck in quinoa for a change and it might be yeah. a tricolored quinoa that's got a white a black and a red you 
you've already got kind of three colors and three different versions of, of different plant nutrients in there. If you add just some onion, that's one we often actually exclude. We think, oh, it's white or it's brown, so it doesn't count. Those are plant nutrients in there. Yeah. Quercetin, mercetin, all of these are actually yeah, different types of antioxidants just because they're not a bright orange or bright green. Then you've got, you know, some tomatoes, maybe something green, maybe a carrot, and then you chuck in a legume and you're already looking at getting, by the time you add a couple of spices, yet close to 10, a third of yeah. your your weekly target in literally a single meal. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The second we even just start to make some meals from scratch, we can get all these different colors in and it's actually very, very easy. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's a nice way to eat as well. So I think a good question to sort of finish on is, is sort of a summary so what what do you think you know someone who's listened to this what should their take home their main take home be from from this discussion do you think i would say if you're looking to take care of the health of your brain definitely take into account lifestyle factors are important staying physically active working on stress but also having a diet that's rich in lots of different colors rich in plant foods but also don't be afraid of fats but from a whole food perspective where we know that they've got that synergistic benefit and also knowing that once if you are someone that gets the disease or you know someone that has the disease that diet does play a factor that maintaining nutrition is going to be really important in the health of these cells and definitely highlighting particularly those polyunsaturated types of fats and definitely antioxidants and, and maybe it's working with a dietitian to try to maintain food and food intake as best as possible because it does seem to help with the actual quality of life in terms of protecting the motor neurons or the muscles and the brain for as long as possible and also helping things such as mood and fatigue which can be some of the greatest factors in disability in these diseases as well yeah really interesting avenue of study cool and hopefully i can give you a bit more information in a few years So everyone, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. If you really enjoyed the topic, then you can visit our website, the Dementia Research website, where you'll find a full transcript from this episode. You'll find links to the rest of the Food for Thought series. You'll find some of the studies that we talked about, and you'll also find the biographies of guests like Amber. And I'd like to mm -hmm. just to finish by saying thank you very much to you for joining us today, Amber. It's been a fascinating discussion. Oh, I'm so glad, and I can. I'm happy to link my email and my website if anyone does have further questions or wants to keep up to date with this topic, because it's definitely something that's going to be continued to be explored in an evidence-based evidence way in the next few years. And I think potentially uh, worth coming back in a year or two's time to see to see how things are going with this. I think everyone would, would want to hear a little bit more. But uh, but thank you all for listening. My name is Sam Moxon. You've been listening to the Dementia Researcher podcast, and we'll see you all next time. The Dementia Researcher podcast was brought to you by University College London with generous funding from the UK National Institute for Health Research, Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Alzheimer's Association and Race Against Dementia. Please subscribe, leave us a review and register on our website for full access to all our great resources. Dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk